We're now about a year and a half removed from President Trump's infamous tweet about the trade war with China, quote, trade wars are good and easy to win. Since then, a few developments have complicated that picture significantly. For instance, so far in 2019, we've lost around $8 billion in sales to China, and total exports from American farms are down by nearly 7% compared to 2018. Scott Lincecum was warning us about the consequences of trade wars long before that tweet, especially in an excellent piece for the Cato Institute entitled, Doomed to Repeat It, The Long History of America's Protectionist Failures. Scott has joined me today to discuss how America has been handling the trade war since then and how it all might play out over the coming months and years. Scott is an international trade attorney with experience in trade litigation before the Department of Commerce, the U.S. International Trade Commission, the U.S. Court of International Trade, the European Commission, and the World Trade Organization's Dispute Settlement Body. He's also a visiting lecturer at Duke University, as well as an adjunct scholar at the Cato Institute, where he publishes research about trade policy. Scott, welcome to the podcast. Oh, thanks for having me. Uh, now, there's a uh, there's a phrase or saying, I don't know if it's a, if it's a meme or on T-shirts, <laughs> and it goes a little like this. Tariffs not only impose immense economic costs, but also fail to achieve their primary policy aims and foster political dysfunction along the way. Right. All right. Now, I, so let's just take a second kind of tear, tear that down. Yeah. Um, the current tariff, are you now calling this a tariff war? I think it, you were calling it a yeah. tariff skirmish. A, is it a war now? Yeah, I think a, a year ago we were, we trade nerds were hesitant to call this uh, a trade war. Um, at this point, now with tariffs on well over half of all Chinese imports and with Chinese tariffs on essentially all American exports to China, um, give or take a few things, uh, yeah, you can call it a trade war. And especially when you add the tariff burden um, with the washing machine safeguard tariffs, the solar panel safeguard tariffs, the steel- Oh, I almost forgot about all those, right. Steel and aluminum national security tariffs. So we have a litany of, of what I would call abnormal tariffs. The United States has some standard tariffs and a kind of a standard trade remedies regime, but these are different. And they are um, far more- uh, aggressive and far different from the kind of trade status quo pre-Trump. Now, uh, people who uh, are, I guess, for the trade yeah. war uh, think that the pre-Trump status quo right. was not sustainable. Right. They'll say, "Well, uh, all you free traders have been talking about all these all these immense costs," as I said in that quote. Uh, but we we don't see it. Prices don't seem to have gone up at all. Right. Everything seems fine. Everything seems to be about the same price at Walmart. Uh, so where are these immense costs that are, that were supposed to be imposed by this now what you would call a trade war? Right. And it's really important to understand where the U.S. tariffs really hit, at least until, again, very recently. The vast majority of these tariffs um, were on manufacturing inputs. So uh, the reason that there wasn't a lot of direct consumer um, price evidence um, of increases is because manufacturers in the United States were absorbing a lot of the costs. Um, and when they were passing them on, they were doing it over a large variety of goods. And, you know, that's one of the reasons why trade is such a, a, a tough political issue, because the benefits of the protectionism are quite uh, significant and concentrated, whereas the costs are quite diffuse. So, but there have been multiple economic analyses that have been by really legitimate academic economists that have actually looked at the tariff 
cost. And they've said that the United States consumer, be it a manufacturer or the end consumer, you or me, uh, are bearing 95 percent. Uh, give or take of the cost, and the idea that President, as President Trump claims, that China and other countries are completely eating those eating costs, their tariffs, and it is yeah. driving their economy. So and, uh, theoretically, um, you could have tariff incidents, we call it, that falls more on uh, the Chinese manufacturer, where they lower their price, and thus the lower price plus the tariff really equals the same price that you and I were paying before. That does not seem to be happening, and that that gets to part of the kind of immense economic cost issue is that outside of the academic economists or economics, uh, the, the, there's a real world issue here. Um, and that is that American manufacturers have very complex supply chains that have that take years to develop. You do not just walk into a factory and say, build me a widget. There is a testing process and a qualification process and all of these types of things. Um, and of course, there are long term contracts. You know, we lawyers, we, we tend to try to tie things up. All of this creates a real impossible situation for American manufacturers where they could not simply just pick up and move their supplies, even if they wanted to. And that gets to the last issue, right? There's all this talk about moving. Oh, they're just going to move the supply chain. Well, Vietnam. It's all, right. it's all, everything's going to move to Vietnam, right. though, though perhaps the secret goal is to move it all to Fremont, California. Yeah, right, you know, right. Make, make all the Apple products there. But at least we, they can move it to uh, countries which we don't seem to have the same sort of geopolitical conflict. Exactly. And the problem there is twofold. One, it's a simple resource issue. Vietnam's a much smaller country, does not have the institutional capacity to handle the, the, the magnitude of, of production like, like a place like China does, right? So it's a simple numbers issue. But the other issue is that the Chinese market is massive and growing, and it's, an, it's a huge middle-class market that a lot of manufacturers, be they American or multinational, foreign, whatever, are not going to simply abandon that market. So what we're actually seeing is supply chains bifurcate. They're just dividing. You have kind of a U.S. supply chain that'll have some end production at a place like Vietnam, and then you still have a Chinese production. So even that's not really happening. Yeah, you know, and I, I wanted to get in sort of what, what what you see as sort of the the policy aims mm -hmm. uh, of the trade war. But it, it seems like almost yeah. the administration not only wants U.S. you know goods meant for the U.S. Uh, manufactured, you know, closer here or preferably in the U.S., mm -hmm. but it's all, it almost seems to be that they want even goods. For China and other countries, also manufactured right. here, like everything mad. Right. We have car companies who build cars in the U.S. under sort of Trumpian trade policy. Yeah. Uh, you know, if other countries adopted it, all those, all those, you know, uh, German cars, they wouldn't be made here in South Carolina. Or they would be made. Every country would try to make everything right. in their own country. Right. You know, that's not really a question. It's just sort of really... Well, yeah, no, and, and it reflects a bit a fundamental kind of understanding of the nature of modern manufacturing. Um, you know, I mentioned the supply chain. So these days, nobody makes 100% um, of a product, I mean, with few exceptions, in, in a single country. Instead, what manufacturers have done over the last 30 years or so is is it's a classic case of comparative advantage. You 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 source from the country that has the comparative advantage in that component, and then you ship all the components to assembly source. Typically, that has been China, although that's changing. Um, and then you uh, ship the finished good uh, from that source. However, at the same time, there's been a, a newer trend in manufacturing to build very close to your customer. The reason you do that is because we customers are very fickle and very demanding. And we are so spoiled by things like Amazon that we want to click a button and have a customized widget, be it a cell phone or whatever, at our doorstep three days later with our name engraved on the back and, a, you know, it's emblazed in pink and bedazzled and whatever. And, and that cannot be done um, 
in China. It needs to be done closer to home, and particularly for large manufacturers, things like cars. And so, again, um, this is just the, the whole idea of having this kind of autarkic system where everything's made in the United States for the U.S. consumer, and then we export everything abroad. It's just a fundamental misunderstanding of the nature of modern manufacturing. Right. And, and this is to go back to the supply chains for a second. I, th I think it was in the book, uh, The One Device, about the, the story of the iPhone. Right. And I, and I, th I think it was the uh, the glass when there was going to be plastic, and then uh, Steve Jobs decided it's all going to get scratched. So let's so let's make it this, with this gorilla glass. Right. And, the, and so it was kind of a I think I might be screwing. I apologize if I'm messing the story up. But uh, and it was sort of a last minute change, and so they just sort of scrambled the jets in China and brought you know woke up everybody, brought in thousands of yeah. workers. And you really can't do that in other places. They really do have a unique ability, right? To, to, to if you want to change things, to like throw a lot of resources at it very, very quickly. So, right. it's, so th there is something special because just because of their their immense size and now that they've developed these capabilities over a number of years, exactly. That you just can't, right? You know. Quickly transpose that to something. Yeah, and I'll and I'll add though one of the other cool things about the iPhone is that little little do people know that so many of the iPhone's components are not made in China. In fact, you mentioned the glass. Nowadays, Corning Gorilla Glass is actually I think made in Kentucky, and then it's shipped to China for assembly into an iPhone. And studies have shown that the actual value add in China, so the actual Chinese-made components, the amount of value that China Chinese manufacturers and workers get from an iPhone iPhone is only 10, 15 bucks. Um, it used to be five, now it's 10, 15, but still compared to, you know, over a hundred dollars that go to other manufacturers around the world. And then of course, hundreds more that go to Apple's shareholders and management and their employees out in Cupertino and the rest. Right. Um, okay. So another part of that, that quote, the, uh, the policy aims. Yeah. I'm not sure of the policy aims. Yes. Because when I usually hear the president talk, especially if he's speaking extemporaneously, it sounds like uh, he sounds like the way he did 30 years ago talking about Japan. They things were being taken advantage of. And the evidence of that is the big uh, trade deficit. Right. And he wants them to buy. He wants China to buy more sort of more of everything, more soybean, more sorghum, more products. So, and, and that that sort of through line has been very, very consistent. And I don't know if. That is still what he thinks. There's other people in the administration seem to have much broader goals. Yes. Uh, that they want to sort of disentangle the American and Chinese economy for both economic and national security reasons. They they they, they think we're entering sort of a new co new cold war, and they're also concerned about intellectual property and sure. tech transfer. Which again, the president will mention sometimes, especially if he's reading off a teleprompter. Right. So I'm not sure. Is the is is the goal? Um, that they buy more stuff and that would somehow affect the trade deficit, even though economists will say something different, is the goal that plus IP and this tech transfer stuff that we were – or is it also plus these sorts of bigger geopolitical right. considerations? As you understand it, is it all the above? And that's why it's confusing. Right. And I think the key is that it's confusing. But but it's also, I think, really important to separate the tariffs. So so I think the steel, aluminum, washing machine, solar panel, those tariffs, those are just straight up protectionist tariffs. They were implemented on expressly protectionist grounds. We have imports that are hurting our domestic industries, and we are going to put tariffs on the products so that our domestic industries can compete on a quote unquote level playing field. Um, and that will bring Bring these industries magically back to life. Right. Now, that's a very clear policy objective and pretty much has failed. 
Um, if, you, if you're reading the news these days, you're seeing that steelmakers are struggling dramatically because the inevitable boom, boomerang happened. Steel prices spiked, demand collapsed. Uh, then, of course, there was retaliation that further dinged the global market. The next thing you know, steelmakers have overcapacity and their share prices tank. And then now they're starting to lay people off. I mean, it's, it is a classic protectionist cycle. It took about a year to, to work through it. So that's very straightforward. China, on the other hand, is, is again, very confusing. So on the one hand, it's buy more soybeans, uh, lower the trade deficit. On the other, it is intellectual property. Um, and then uh, finally, you have this geopolitical, uh, this kind of um, great separation of the two uh, economies, this right. disengagement, right? And and the the problem is that all of these things fight against each other, okay? So if you're buying more from each other, if they are buying more of our stuff, well, you're not actually separating the two economies. If you uh, resolve the intellectual property issues, and look, there are some legitimate intellectual property issues in China. Um, if you resolve those, well, then you remove the tariffs. And again, you, you don't have this kind of great um, uh, disengagement. And then, of course, if you do in disengage, then you're not going to solve any of those issues. Uh, uh, those previous two issues. Um, so it it becomes, like you said, it's a grab bag. And um, the president also, of course, wants a deal and wants a deal so badly at this point um, that we, we, there's a lot of questions among China hawks, which I'm certainly not one. Um, but China hawks question whether what we're going to get is just total garbage. It's just worthless because there's this political element to all of this, which, again, is one why tariffs are such a, a, a dumb policy uh, mechanism is because the president needs to get reelected and tariffs are punching your own economy in the face. Yes, you're going to hit the other guy too, but you're hurting yourself. Um, and in a democratic country, uh, a particularly one that's going head to head with an authoritarian regime that doesn't have elections every two to four years, um, it is quite difficult to maintain the, uh, the level of pain needed to fight out the trade war. And I should add, of course, we were all promised as Americans, as American consumers and voters, that this was going to be an easy, good and easy to win right. trade war. It was going to be very quick and painless. China was going to cave instantly. We were all going to be fine. And now we see Republican politicians promising to rebate tariff money to Americans so that we um, all are uh, bearing the patriotic cost together. It's nonsense. Do you think it is possible? Because there seemed like there was almost a deal last spring, which was kind of if, at the beginning is probably the kind of deal you might have anticipated, which is they buy more stuff and they promise to do to to tighten up intellectual property, yeah. stop the force. That was the kind of deal. Do you think that kind of? But since then, there's been so much more talk right. about the new Cold War between the right, two right. countries. Do you think? Do you think that kind of deal is still possible? Yeah, politically? I I think so. It's but they've but the because, president has the reason because uh, if if, we're, if now we're worried about them infiltrating all our communication system with right. Huawei, it seems like a deal that doesn't address the national security issues. Yeah. I I mean I don't know what would cause Republicans to criticize the president on this, but it seems to me that if that kind of deal. There would be a lot of Republican complaints. If right. That kind of a, I, I totally agree. The, the president has really painted himself into a corner on this. Um, he needs to do something 
to convince markets that that we're not going into a recession. Um, and you know, the yesterday's manufacturing numbers were absolutely horrific. Uh, some of the worst numbers we've had since the Great Recession. Um, and uh, part of the reason for that is the president's trade war. Um, and so he has to do something on that side. Politically also, remember, this is a man who sold himself as president deals. He was going to make the deals that all those stupid trade negotiators and all those dumb trade right. nerds like me couldn't handle. All got taken in by, right. the, by the super smart Chinese. Right. And they are, they are so much smarter than our guys, and I'm going to handle it. So President Deals hat needs a deal, too, right. for political purposes. But like you said, on the other end, if he caves, you'll have secu- uh, national security hawks in his own party hitting him. You'll have Democrats, of course, hitting him, too. Right. Um, so it... It looks like there is a little uh, eye of a needle they could thread, and that would be some sort of mini deal, essentially pulling back some of the latest tariffs, leaving on some of the uh, other tariffs, the things I mentioned on industrial inputs and whatever, um, and announcing more soybean purchases and all that, and some tweaks to intellectual property, essentially getting us back to where we were a few months ago. Not a big deal. But but something that that calms. Do you think down. the Chinese would go for that? I, mean, <clears> I don't. They know. really want those tariffs off. I, and I and I think that you know, look, the Chinese economy is struggling too, um, in part because of the tariffs, but far more because it's a you know, let's face it, a command and control economy right. still in a lot of ways with a lot of distortions in in their banking system and the rest. Um, and so they're having problems too. So you actually have these two superpowers limping at each other, kind of you know, it's like an the round 14 in a Rocky movie, right? right? They're just flailing at each other all bloody. Um, and and there is, it does seem, the that both sides wouldn't mind stepping back away from the cliffs a little bit. Um, whether, the, the big question though is, is whether they can find something that threads that needle, um, that assuages the hawks in the administration and in the Republican Party, um, gives the president some political cover, it gives markets a little breathing room. Um, uh, yeah, it's tough. certainly for the real like super hawks. You know, oh yeah, I, I feel like they have China on the mat. Now's the time to sort of step on its neck. Right and. You know, only kind of deal they would accept is sort of complete capitulation. Right. Uh, uh, President Xi Jinping resigns. They have free elections. Yeah, and it's uh, and, you and, know, and all that stuff is it's really it's so frustrating because look, you know, I think that that everybody in this room, most people in this building, and so forth, have very legitimate gripes with China, very legitimate criticisms, um, whether it's on trade or human rights or military issues, national security issues, whatever. The problem is that the tariffs are just such a horrible mechanism to achieve these changes. Um, And in fact, give the Chinese government um, an ready excuse for the failures of their own economic system. Um, And of course, it, it the, the kind of hostile, aggressive, uh, frontal attack of, of tariffs makes it actually much harder, typically, for a a foreign government to concede to demands that might even be in their interest. I mean, what people some some people don't understand is that the Chinese government, for all their issues, was actually trying pre-Trump to move away from this kind of distorted export-led economy. They were trying to move towards a more consumption-oriented economy, a more kind of services-based economy, trying to move up the development ladder right. like, like all countries do. And, and, and they, since then, uh, in part because of, of President Xi's 
own uh, demands and desires, but also in part because of the trade war. We've actually seen some some uh, them actually devolving um, and stepping back from some of these reforms, um, empowering SOEs, uh, uh, inflating their banking system, all these types of things that they were trying to get away right from. Um, they're they're getting back into a bit because of the trade war. Um, we mentioned sort of the intellectual property, yeah. force text transfer, which I feel like is just kind of a musical phrase. I say now, I say these words. Yeah. How how big was that still a problem? I mean, you hear some massive numbers. That would have, yeah. So what IP were they stealing? Yeah. How significant was that to us economically? Right. So and I think there's there's two types of of IP issue. So one that is very serious and should be dealt with forcefully, and that's the the state-sponsored hacking. Mm-hmm. So where you actually had you know Chinese military uh, uh, individuals uh, actually infiltrating American companies' right. computer systems and stealing their IP. Okay, that is that is just straight up needs to be dealt with through sanctions and the rest. Um, on the other hand, you have tech transfer. Tech transfer is a pretty normal thing. Um, what the Chinese were allegedly doing was essentially saying, look, if you want to operate in China and have a joint venture in China, you have to give your joint venture partner, which is Chinese, uh, your IP. And that's the cost of doing business in China. Now, that is inconsistent with WTO rules. It's actually inconsistent with one of China's uh, WTO plus accession commitments. Um, but it still is a voluntary action by the, in this case, American investor. I want to be in China, therefore I am going to give. I'm not, I'm not being, I'm not, it's not being stolen. I'm giving it to my JV partner. Now, that you can still say that's an issue, but that's very different. Now, the numbers attached to these things are are all over the place. Uh, USTR's own report uh, said fifty billion dollars, uh, I believe, total. Um, but th- that's why the tariff level was originally fifty fifty billion dollars. Um, now, I've certainly heard numbers magnitude right or, right and 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 that's times. yeah and these are the types of things that look anybody can put a number on anything but when you when you actually look at what american businesses there was actually just a survey um a few days ago from amcham american chamber of commerce in china and tech transfer was way down on the list of their actual concerns um you know 10 percent of companies were reporting it as as an issue um and so you know is it worth destroying the bilateral trade relationship over something that you know American companies there say is a, a minor issue? Probably not. And they were trying to tighten up the IP stuff yes. for the benefit also of Chinese. Yeah. In fact, well. there was another uh, survey uh, a, a year or two ago that it, that Chinese intellectual property practices were actually uh, approaching Canadian intellectual property practices. And now the Americans have have some issues with U.S. IP or Canadian IP policy. But the point being that China was generally getting getting better. Um, but you know, one of the Again, we get back to the president's contradictions. One of the funny things about this, of course, is let's say China really cleaned up their IP regime and started letting American companies invest freely think, in China. I think I know where you're going with this. Outsourcing. Right. It's, it I makes mean, them a more attractive place right. to do so, business. So now GM is going to put another car factory there and ship more cars back to the United States. So, you know, it it's it's baffling to me that the president's uh, the tip of the president's policy spear on China is something that would actually facilitate additional American offshore investment in right. China. Right. It, again, it's kind of an incoherent policy when you start thinking about it. 
But the uh, uh, sort of the the pre-Trump status quo was that a, was that a sustainable status quo? Yeah. So, and this I wrote an article. And that, and what, this should appear what that status quo was. Uh, status quo was generally tariffs. Tariffs are pretty low. Yeah. Right. Uh, it's sort of, sort of globally. Uh, the pre-status quo was big trade deficits between the U.S. and other countries. Mm-hmm. Uh, other part of the status quo was that there were some uh, areas of the United States that seemed to have been hit hard. Yeah by China more officially entering the global economy. Yep. So those are like, I think, three elements of the, of the status quo. Right. And did they need to be dealt with in some in some right. some fashion? Did something need to change? Yeah, and I think that something did need to change. Um, but, they, they, of course, the, the key question is, is what should change and how should you right. change it right? And so, so one, of the, one of the issues I think that the Obama administration deserves some credit is that the, the they were trying to do something that was important in terms of dealing with China, and that was creating a regional trade agreement with a lot of uh, uh, other countries, uh, friendly countries in the Asia-Pacific region to kind of counterbalance China's influence. And that, of course, was the Trans-Pacific Partnership. So they were, in that sense, trying to to um, to work on a uh, kind of balance, counterbalancing uh strategy in terms of China. Um, on the other hand, I think that that one area where I think they really uh, uh, did not hit the mark is uh, aggressively confronting Chinese trade practices at the World Trade Organization. So uh, my Cato colleagues actually wrote a paper earlier this year, I believe, about how effective WTO dispute settlement actually has been in convincing uh, China and other countries to change their trade practices. And yes, WTO disputes are boring. Yes, they take a long time. But if you actually dig into the numbers, you see that uh, the United States wins about 100%, it's 99, 90-whatever percent of the disputes it brings, and China eventually complies partially or fully. You know, nobody is perfect in the WTO system. The United States has its own warts. Everybody has their issues. Um, But the Chinese were tending to comply. My problem with the Obama administration was they weren't bringing nearly enough of these cases. Um, And they should have been doing it on a more um, uh, concerted effort with uh, countries like Japan and the EU and India and Brazil and others. Um, and so that, I think, is a, is a, an area of, of uh, quite legitimate criticism. Um, on the other hand, the, the kind of China shock issues, mm-hmm. um, to me, are, are quite oversold. Um, yes, uh, Chinese uh, China joining the global economy in the 1990s, joining the WTO in the early 2000s, um, did increase imports of Chinese goods into the United States. And that import competition did, as it tends to do, have an adverse impact on on certain American manufacturers and certain American manufacturing workers. Mm-hmm. Um, whether that necessitated a wholesale change in American trade policy is a totally different question. And the fact is that if you look at what was going on at the time and what has gone on since, you see there's two really big flaws in in the idea that we needed massive tariffs to solve the China shock. Um, The first is that we actually had uh, mechanisms in place that could apply tariffs on Chinese imports. Uh, Our anti-dumping and countervailing duty regime uh, allows for a very permissive use of 
of duties to go after Chinese imports um, under U.S. law. Um, and we have hundreds of those duties in place on Chinese goods. Um, f- you know, this is for either dumping or subsidy allegations. So we have that. We also had a special safeguard mechanism um, under Section 421 of the U.S. law that China agreed to as part of its WTO accession. The United States could just hit Chinese goods with additional duties. Um, And President Obama did that once um, on Chinese tires. And it was an utter debacle, total failure. The reason for this is that as happened in the tires case, and um, as uh, a a, a friend of mine, a guy who was in the Council of Economic Advisors, Phil Levy, Mm -hmm. um, wrote about when he was at the Council of Economic Advisors, the big problem with these kind of bilateral tariffs um, was that you have a thing called trade diversion. And that is that, okay, you knock China out of the U.S. market. And what's going to happen? It's not going to actually boost American tire production. All you're going to do is start importing tires from Brazil and Korea and Thailand and other places. And that's exactly what happened. And so Phil wrote, he said, look, when I was at CEA, we looked at the numbers. And what we realized is if we applied these 421 safeguards, if we applied these duties, all it was going to do was increase tariffs from, from other countries in Southeast Asia and elsewhere. And that, I think, is one of the big flaws in this kind of China shock necessitating duties theory is that it never really thinks of what would be the alternative without Chinese imports. And what you see in the data at the time is that Chinese imports didn't displace as much American production as they displaced uh, other imports. And so, the, in fact, uh, Congressional Research Service just uh, about a year ago wrote a, a great report where they said the share of imports into the United States from uh, like the Pacific Rim countries uh, in 1990 was 47%. The share in 2016 was 47%. The only difference is that China's share jumped from a few percentage points in 1990 to something like 25% later. And that's the nature of the supply chains, the nature of China's competitiveness and its place in the supply chain. So look, you know, the fact is that... Uh, You know, you mentioned like, you know, what is the sort of alternate... Uh, you know, what, what is, we, people don't look at like what else might have happened. But one thing uh, some of the more hawkish people say is, listen, the whole thing was just a mistake. Yeah, that we should that you know, we, you know, all we did was enable right. this this not an economic competitor, a strategic competitor. Is is there another path we could have taken in the yeah. '90s or 2000? Uh, which would have, I don't know, I'm not sure what their goal is to somehow have isolated China, kept China poor. Yeah, what. I don't know. So, so it, it's 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 a big country, right? And it's 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 really a a classic case of revisionist history. Um, you have to look at what American policymakers were seeing in the late 1990s, and this is a country in China that was actually undertaking significant economic reforms, economic reforms that, according to economists, um, really powered China's export competitiveness, much less so than WTO entry. Um, that the the economic reforms that the Chinese undertook, um, whether it's privatization, lowering of import duties, all of these types of things really supercharged uh, China's export competitiveness. Um, So also you had every other WTO member, about 140 of them, wanted China in the WTO. And every other WTO member had signed off on China's WTO agreement. So the United States was left really with a, a, a a quote-unquote choice of um, denying China permanent normal trade relations and essentially letting every other country in the world uh, get the benefits of uh, China's 
more open markets. Um, whereas the United States was going to essentially give China a free pass to keep discriminating against Chinese exports, agriculture, manufacturers, whatever, services, and the rest. So, so that was um, not much of a not much of a choice. Um, and the other thing that they say, oh, we could have denied China entry into the WTO. Well. Like you said, there's there's a couple problems with that. Um, first, they were going to have to convince 140 other countries um, that that was the uh, they, that was the, the right thing to do. Uh, good luck. Right. Beyond that, though, um, you have the issue of denying over a billion people um, and a country with nuclear weapons uh, that was modernizing access to a mul- an open multilateral trading system that includes countries like Cuba, uh, uh, you know, a, former Eastern Bloc countries that had command and control style economies. It just it just wasn't a realistic thing, particularly at the time. And now, yes, have things kind of gone off the rails a bit since then? Yes. And did China's WTO entry help boost its export competitiveness? Well, probably. Uh, but uh, it wasn't this very simple, oh, we should have denied them access and they would have been, you know, they wouldn't have, have risen. Um, and, you know, the other thing, of course, to mention is that, look, we, uh, China has had nukes, has had nukes for 30 years. Um, so you had a nuclear power, which is very different from uh, other countries like North Korea or whatever, where maybe keeping them poor might deter their nuclear regime. Well, we don't have that issue. And at the same time, let's face it, we've isolated Iran and North Korea and they're still slowly but surely progressing um, in terms of, you know, nuclearization and and the rest. Um, And so, you know, there wasn't like this really easy alternative. Um, And and I think the so I think that it was it was really uh, the right thing to do. Um, But I do think that, again, there have been missteps since then. So just to sort of finish up what what, again, what is your best forecast here? (laughs) You know, a mini, a mini deal, and then this is sort of what these sorts of tensions and conflicts will always be, uh, will sort of always be with us. Do you think that that this gains more support in the American public? I mean, really, to do try to sort of split the two economies. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's it's a great question, and I I think that you know, looking at the Democratic Party. Um, unfortunately, there doesn't seem to be a free trader in the bunch. Um, I mean, I, you know, I think no, they have sort of their own. Ver- they're trying to create their own version of protection, right? That is not Trump, so they can't say we're doing what Trump. But right, it's but it's, it's just thing. it's just Trumpian protectionism with green eye shades. You know, really, um, the there's not a, a whole lot of space in terms of the actual measures. It's just the, the justifications for those measures. Um, so they seem more boring and harder to understand. In order yeah, to and and of course, there's a lot of a lot of dissembling. There's a yeah. lot of, of people just not wanting to touch the issue because trade splits the Democratic Party. Um, so that's, I think, the pessimistic case, particularly in the near term, is that there doesn't seem to be any um, uh, effort from any of the political class uh, to to m- kind of go back to a more liberalized trading regime, at least with respect to China. Um, and I think that, you know, there is this kind of DC's weird. There's this policy momentum. Once the the policy starts, regardless of its whether it stinks, regardless of whether it fails to achieve its primary policy aims and fosters political dysfunction along the way, regardless of that, well, no, that's what we have to do because there's this really big sunk cost fallacy, right? That well, we're in there now. We can't back out, right? I mean, it's it's kind of done is done. We might we got to keep you know right. It's you know get through hell. You just keep on going forward. And I hate to 
quote Paul Krugman in a place like this. You know, I think lightning bolts might start hitting me. But you know, he called it, um, you know, uh, the next Afghanistan. And there is a, a part of that, this quagmire, right? We're stuck because if we back out now, we look like we're we we lost and all of that stuff. So I think there, in the short term and on the political level, it's very pessimistic. But I will give you a glimmer of hope for those of you listening out there. Um, the fact is that the polling on trade is has never been better. Um, Americans, by and large, particularly younger Americans, um, not only accept but but really appreciate trade and globalization. They think it is good for the American economy. They think it is good for their own pocketbooks. And um, they oppose tariffs. Now, some of that is... N- inevitably tied to, to Trump. Right, because they, they view that as a Trump policy and therefore everything exactly. he touches must be wrong. But the longer term trends pre-Trump through the Obama era is you see a, a, a growing support for trade, globalization, openness, and, uh, and a opposition to tariffs and protectionism. Um, and so, and, and look, you know, we're in a way for we free traders, this is the best of times. Almost every day, I can pick up the newspaper virtually and see headlines about the immense economic costs or failed policy objectives of the president's tariff regime. And so in that sense, um, you know, it gives us a ton of ammunition. And I think we are teaching, uh, for better or worse, a lot of people out there just how stupid tariffs and protectionism are as a trade mechanism. Now, it is unfortunate that I have to reteach this, having two years ago written a 50-page paper about the failures of American protectionism. But at the very least, we're having that discussion now. And so I think in the longer term, once we get the geriatrics out of the uh, out of the White House um, and and slowly move away from from the current moment we're in, uh, I think things can get better. Scott, thanks for coming on the podcast. My pleasure. City sky comes down.